and welcome to The New Conspiracist, the podcast that deals with everything from the moon landings to whether the milkman is in fact putting some sort of strange mind-controlling material into your saccharine-flavoured breakfast cereals. This is a podcast that deals with the sublime and the absurd from Avril Lavigne's replacement to whether Kubrick actually filmed the moon landings. And as always, uh, my fluff is is joined at the hip with the intellectual weight and powerhouse that is James Ball. How are you, mate? Sir, I'm mainly blown away that you still have a milkman, Jolian. I thought you lived in leafy metropolitan London. Oh, listen, in East 17, even, listen, glass milk bottles are like, are really in now. You know, like having a milkman is seen as supporting the local community. Um, How's your week been? Have you been being sued by anyone recently? Sir, actually, I've, I, I think I've got to Thursday as we're recording this without any lawsuits this week. So uh, things are good in the journalism world. So this week, we are joined by a totemic force in the world of comedy, certainly someone who massively affected my career, someone whose work, really, I think I first came into contact with on the Mary Whitehouse experience when, you know, I was a wee nipper. And I remember sitting in Wembley Arena, staring down, thinking, my God, these two men, how have they, how have they created such sort of comic sort of forces? He, he then sort of, sort of morphed into this, you know, sort of deeply, extremely powerful sort of uh, intelligence beyond, way beyond comedy and into sort of social commentary. And I, of course, am talking about the one and only David Baddiel. David, thank you so much for joining us. Very, very kind of you. And thank you for that very kind introduction. David, what was your uh, what was your sort of entry-level conspiracy theory? Like what, what really sort of floated your boat when you were a kid? As a kid, that's a complicated question because I was going to begin by saying that I do have, there is a quote attributed to me. I say attributed, it is my quote. I said that as if I'm joking now. <laughs> Debunk it, it's not real. I did say it. Uh, I said it, I think, first on Twitter, but I've said it since on television when I did my Holocaust denial documentary. And, of course, Holocaust denial is a kind of er uh, text, I think, of conspiracy theory. Uh, but I was talking to a completely mad Holocaust denial when I said it, when I repeated it. And that is what I said is that I think conspiracy theory is how idiots get to feel like intellectuals. And I, I do think that is the basis of conspiracy theory. I think uh, conspiracy theory is really about people, generally men, but not always, who uh, can't make sense of the world and its difficult randomness and want there to be a guiding principle behind it, even if that guiding principle is kind of negative, i.e. an enemy of some sort. And they, it's, it's, it's reassuring and kind of ordered and allows them to feel on top of things and kind of high status uh, within their low status self-esteem that they have understood this thing about the world. So to answer your question, even though I probably wouldn't have articulated that when I was a kid, I think I always thought it was bollocks. I don't know that I ever had a conspiracy theory that I believed in. I think I always had a sense that the world was random and mad and crazy and difficult to process. And that's what you have to accept, not to come up with a fairy tale. I think you might be the first person who's not ever had a favourite conspiracy. <laughs> do, you, do you not think it takes a little bit of magic and mystery out of the world? Uh not really, no. I, I, I'm very anti-magic and mystery in that sense. I like magic and mystery in storytelling, but I'm, uh, I'm what I consider to be on the spectrum 
uh, committed to truth. Come, come, come now, David. Come now, David. Surely one, you know, Stone's teenage evening, you got involved with a JFK conspiracy. <laughs> well, actually, JFK is a good one because I probably did grow up thinking, oh, yeah, something dodgy was going on there. And then I read, I don't know if anyone's referred to this already, but I read um, David Aronovich's Voodoo Histories. And that begins, I think, by saying, you might not believe in the moon landings being faked or the Earth being flat or whatever, but you accept that JFK, that was the CIA or whatever, it isn't. Uh, and then he provides all this evidence, including something I didn't know, which is that Lee Harvey Oswald tried to kill someone, tried to kill a general or something like like a week beforehand, uh, which generally isn't known. And it's interesting because there are some conspiracy theories that you uh, you know, sort of think, oh, yeah, they're the OK conspiracy theories. But I don't know that I ever did have a favourite one. Uh, I mean, we'll, we'll probably come to this. Um, we had an interesting line from um, Hassan Akkad, who uh, grew up in Syria. And he kind of said, for him, like, growing up, 9-11 was an inside job, wasn't really a conspiracy theory. That was the mainstream narrative. That was just what you got taught. Uh, and so it's, it was quite a strange one, really. But no, well, well, that's completely the case i mean you know we're gonna i believe without wishing to blow what this is centering on we're going to be talking about the jews and their function within conspiracy theory and one of those things is that uh the 9-11 idea which is you know i wouldn't say it's completely marginal there's lots of people who think 9-11 was an inside job 9-11 was uh you know constructed in some way but the belief that jews were told the ones who worked in the world trade center not to go into work that day I mean, 87% of people in the Middle East believe that to be true. Mm. It's not true, but they just believe it to be true. Yeah, you go into some detail about this, don't you? You sort of say that the, the uh, on a piece that you wrote for The Guardian, I guess it was two or yeah. three years ago now, you say that it was about, what is it, 9.44% of those who, oh, yeah. 9.25% of the people who died in the Twin Towers were Jewish, which is roughly proportionate to the Jewish population of New York. Yes, yeah, the Jewish population of New York as a percentage. Before we go into that, though, I must. I think what I will answer, to answer your question, if I had a favourite conspiracy theory, not in terms of what I believe, but in terms of what I like, as like, okay, this is an excellent mental one, it is flat-earthing. Yeah, um, I mean, it's great. I would say. I once, I, once, I once, also, because of the comedy it generates, so I did once ask on Twitter, uh, with flat-earthing, right, who benefits? Because people love... One of the ways in which idiots like to feel like intellectuals is through the phrase QE bono, right? That's a big conspiracy theory. <laughs> Who benefits, right? And they, they think with a bit of Latin, rather like Boris Johnson, that proves they're clever, right? So they say who benefits, right? So I asked the question, QE bono from the world being round, right? Who the fuck <laughs> benefits from the world being round? And I don't know if you'll get this, Jolyn, because I think you're too young, but someone answered Lisa Stansfield. <laughs> younger listeners is someone who did a song called All Around the World. Amazing. <laughs> and, and I just thought, right, that's worth it now. That conspiracy theory has w made itself worthwhile in culture for that joke. As David has, spoiler alert, alluded to, this week it is The Jews. So, James... The Jews. It seems like a broad conspiracy theory here. What is it all about? It, it's probably the broadest of all of them. Uh, basically, it just turned out we had too many Jewish conspiracy theories to choose from, so we decided to merge them in what hopefully won't get us deleted off your uh, favourite podcast provider of choice uh, <laughs> into one title of The Jews. Um, 
so you you really have a really rich field to pick from here. Um, perhaps one of the most famous Jewish conspiracy theories is uh, blood libel, which uh, sort of centers on the idea that uh, Jews use the blood of Christian children for various religious rites. Uh, this one is a proud British invention, believe it or not. Uh, blood libel was born in the 11th century in Norwich. Um, so, you know, well done, Norfolk. So put you on the map there. But you really have a rich gamut of other ones, as we've hinted at. Um, there's lots of suggestions around sort of Jews controlling the financial system, the media, any other system that you might like. There's uh, all sorts of uh, conspiracies around Israel and its influence. There's uh, really, you name it, um, you know, as, as uh, David's already hinted at. Uh, if you look at a conspiracy theory, at some point, usually within about three minutes of the conversation beginning, the Jews will be behind it in some way or other. There's so many parts of this, isn't there, though? There's so many sorts of facets that we'll definitely want to cover today. Blood libel, the financial markets, the state of Israel. It is it is a massive canon of conspiracy, is it not? What you get is the reframing quite a lot of the time of, all, of those older conspiracy theories to new events. So blood libel is being incorporated into QAnon. Mm. Uh, at the moment. So there's a suggestion that satanic rituals involving children is going on, uh, that the elite are doing that in one way or another. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't, I haven't, got, I haven't tracked it enough, but I am fairly certain that on those QAnon websites that those elites will slide very quickly into Jews. Mm. I've seen many things saying that coronavirus uh, is something created by the Jews. Uh, you know, it's, it's, Almost any so situation. China's famously high Jewish population. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Chinese and Jews, that's the whole of China. But the, the key element to it is, which is not going to be a new thought, and I've said it myself many times, and I'm sure Jolien has as well, is, well, there's about two key things. The, the very key thing is that Jews as a minority, and as a, a in most people's eyes a minority that they are perhaps not very aware of and think of as slightly alien and different or whatever, they have a particular thing, which is fairly unique, I think, to Jews, although someone might correct me, which is this dual status, high and low. So like any minority, Jews are often considered by the racists, vermin, scum, thieving, blah, 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 dirty, all the things that all racists consider minorities to be. But Jews are also, as far as I'm aware, the only minority who the same people will also consider to be in control high-powered, moneyed, privileged, secretly controlling the world. And the Nazis believed both those things at once as well. Mm. Um, and so that gives them a particular status, as they are alien and weird and enemy and dirty. We don't like them. They're evil. But they're not just people we can crush because they're sort of powerful and, you know, you can't speak. And that immediately leads into a position where it's easy to imagine them as, you know, behind all sorts of, modern evils and that also puts them in a position where they're going to be targeted by both the right and the left because there's so much to unpack in this episode i want to really focus in quickly on this idea of jews controlling the financial markets so where did this begin it comes really from deep history. I'd be interested to hear sort of what David thinks on this. But um, for centuries and centuries, Jew Jewish people have had an outsider status in most countries that they're in and have faced persecution and often have been cut out of some institutions, you know, certainly cut out of the 
aristocracy when we were essentially feudal. And so quite rationally and sort of sensibly, a lot of Jewish families moved into merchant-type trades and also into finance because basically of bits of religious loopholes that allowed Jews to lend to Christians. And so because of a lack of access to other sources and a lack of stability of, you know, knowing that you could say work land without being moved on or chased out of, uh, chased out of the country, Jewish people tended to these particular trades. And that sort of has held, I mean, you know, for, for a relatively small, you know, religious group or ethnic group in, in global terms, there, there are more Jewish people in these trades. But it's sort of a result of the persecution that has itself become a cause for it mm. um, is sort of how it looks to me. But that's probably an awful characterization of it. Well, well as far as I understand it, I mean, that, no, it's not an awful characterization. It's definitely true that Jews had to become money lenders because that they weren't allowed to work in loads of other professions. Uh, but I'm also, like, as far as I'm aware, that because of the ability of essentially not just racist, but a kind of racist unconscious in culture whereby the other has to be imagined as an actual coherent group rather than just, you know, our own fears. You get in a situation where, like, Rothschild, who in my, as far as I know, although they're a successful and important banking family, in no way are the most important, you know, thing in banking and don't control world banking compared to, like faceless conglomerates that can <laughs> they're an absolute sideshow you're completely right yeah but they're still the ones who are continually mentioned i mean to give an example of what we would i think consider the left doing that when mere one did that mural mm-hmm. uh which uh, jeremy corbyn sort of you know defended and got got into an issue with that uh he mere one in uh, arguing that you know, the the people who were upset by this were, in his idea, the wrong sort of people and call them old white. It's a very important thing that he called them white. Mm. I shouldn't get into that. Old white Jewish folk. He put hashtag Warburg, hashtag Rothschild. Mm. Uh, and the hashtag is really important because it allows you to click on it and follow it into weird parts of the internet where you can find out or you want to find out about Rothschild and Warburg. But the point is, it's a way of creating named villains. And... As far as I know, and you're about to tell me, Rothschild, Warburg, or whatever, they probably are successful banking families, but the amount of power they have on the global economy will be minuscule, will it not? So, yeah, Rothschilds is privately owned. And so I think partly, you know, the fact that people don't have a bank card in their wallet with Rothschild's name on it, et cetera, helps add to the mystique and the mystery of it. But compared to some of the actual big players, they're just not that major a funder and not that major a, a worker. It's, it's. I mean, most dynasties don't hold power in those kind of ways. You know, yeah. as you say, with, with banking, actually, you know, China is a much, much more substantial force behind it, but it's mostly corporate and it's mostly, as you say, these kind of faceless conglomerates. The weird thing about 
the banking sector and the power it wields is it's our money they're doing it with it's your pension it's your yeah. sort of savings mm. account it's it's not actually some secret tier of people separate from us it's a yeah. weird executive class that we fund while we then hate them exactly and also it's it's the machinery of capitalism that is doing this and that's a harder and more abstract thing to hate than you know, a face. I mean, Soros is, is another good example. And you can probably tell me more about Soros. But I'm amazed by how Soros has become such an obvious Emmanuel Goldstein from 1984 figure. Mm. Because as far as I could make out, he's just a rich bloke who funds some, you know, stuff. Um, and yet, because of this need to have essentially a villain figure that, in his case, mainly the right can focus on as like this is the evil person destroying the world. He's essentially head of Spectre. You know, he is created in that way. Yeah. And it, the stupidity of it is amazing because you think like, no, there are bad things in the world and they're created systemically by the way that late-stage capitalism operates involving lots of people having to be extremely poor as a, you know, to function in the way it does. It's That's how it works. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Warning, this podcast contains juicy tales of a super dysfunctional family. Brothers betraying brothers, friends becoming enemies, and a mother trying her best to keep everything from falling apart. No, this isn't a reality TV rewatch. I'm Dan Jones, your host, and this is one of my all-time favorite true stories. Join me on a trip to the Middle Ages to meet history's most dangerous dynasty, the Plantagenets. This season, the plots are thicker, the ambitions greater, and the betrayals are even more devious in the epic saga of the family that shaped our world. From something else in Sony Music Entertainment, this is History, a dynasty to die for, season two. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want, to, I want to dig into a couple of things that, 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 that David's sort of bringing up because I think they're absolutely totemic and fundamental in understanding the sort of ecosystem of sort of misinformation and fear that goes around. So when we were making the revolution we televised, we made that exact discovery that David's talking about. You could do a sketch going into corporate tax avoidance by something like, you know, Vodafone and the, the different sort of offshore um you know, havens, be they sort of, you know, where, where, where sort of Luxembourg or Delaware, or any, anywhere that has kind of these these bizarre sort of low tax havens and, and, and sort of really talk about how a company was doing it. But if you put a name on it, if you actually say, well, look, Chris Grayling, 
this. Mm. People key into it in a much more powerful, personalized way because, as David said at the beginning of the podcast, it's much easier to do that. And then, you know, in in more recent years when I was filming in in Davos, which is one of these kind of uh, sort of bizarre, almost succession-like scenes where you have more private helicopters than you have taxis and you have more armed sort of people walking around and you have these sort of faceless billionaires who are walking around with their own security, you realize there is huge, huge flows of capital which come from as, and I think you put it in uh, in your article, David, you know, it's almost a bit like spectre. People want to believe there is a spectre. It's comforting somehow to think there is some ordering of the massively chaotic systems that we, that we currently live in. I, th- I think the most fascinating one of all of these, actually, is probably Soros himself. Yeah. Because he's kind of painted himself with the target to become the figure that he has. How do you mean? You know, he has a, a fairly colourful colorful background in his financial practices. He was uh, he was one of the architects of Black Wednesday, sort of quite savvily as a uh, current as a sort of hedge funder. Um betting that the that major's government couldn't keep up the pound and he made a a billion made a in a day he? uh yeah he made a billion um but he sort of decided to use his wealth and his legacy to very very openly fight for what the right call globalism and what you know the rest of us call internationalism he wanted open connected liberal societies and sort of named named money behind that and put overwhelming majority of his wealth into it um you know as i say i'm funded by it and in practice it's a very boring sort of ngo you do you do grant applications you sort of work work on mission stuff but in an odd way, what Soros's advocates would say he's doing and what his very racist detractors would say he's doing is the same thing. Yeah, he is exactly. actually trying to promote globalism. He is actually trying to change some of the countries he grew up in. Uh, have you met George Soros, by the way? Uh, I haven't actually met him, no. I've, I've been in a room with him, but I haven't spoken with him. Well, because there's something I think that's important here, which I'm going to have to say in a very vulgar way to make the point, which is I think he looks fairly like a sort of cartoon Jewish evil person. I mean, that sounds racist. I thought you were going to just about say he looks like a lizard. I thought no, well, that's where well, we were going. Well, to be honest with you, I don't think he looks like a lizard, but I think I've seen him pictured in, uh, you know, people who want to say this bloke is the evil overlord of the world, where he, they may as well be picturing him as a lizard. Um, and I think that's quite important because mm. I think when you dig down into this stupidity that I, uh, that I think is very key, is what Jolia said is right, is that humanity, mass humanity, can't really think in the abstract. Mm. So one reason, in fact, why I think Christianity is much more successful than Judaism as a religion is it thought of Jesus as a kind of superhero, right? <laughs> and, and he's kind of God and human, and you can empathize with him as a man on a cross, right? And people got into that, whereas this sort of weird, invisible, angry spirit thing that Judaism worshipped is not as easy to key into in yeah, the same it's, way it's, you couldn't you couldn't marvel franchise it could you 
as far as I'm aware, from the bloke who was in Mel Gibson's movie, they are franchising Jesus' life because there's another one of The Passion of the Christ 2 is happening. I don't know what's going to happen in it because he hasn't come back yet. But so your, your own personal Jehovah just doesn't really have the same ring to it. Exactly. Peshmode exactly. would have chucked that out at the drawing board. So my, my <laughs> point is, if it's true of goodness, which we can assume God and Jesus to be, I suppose, even though I'm an atheist, it's true of evil, mm. right? And, uh, and so that's why the devil is kind of a character rather than a series of interlinked, complicated, bad things that might happen randomly in the world. And that's why he can be projected onto people who, in our idea of what conventional attractiveness is, don't look like that. Yes. Look a bit kind of... Well, it's the hook old, nose, isn't it? It's the hook nose. Yeah, it's the wizard feeling. Exactly. And we can't, I can't stress enough how important that is, actually. I mean, I talk about this. I've written a book called Jews Don't Count, which is about the failure of identity politics, in my opinion, to really understand Jews as a minority who suffer racism. And one of those things is going back to that mural, yeah. is, their, is, is the left's inability to see that that projection, that hook-nosed, bearded, dark, money-counting projection of Jews is what our culture sees as evil going back centuries, mm. well before the politics we have now, to gargoyles on churches. And think about how close gargoyles on churches are to those men in Mere One's mural. Totally. It's a sort of eternal projection of evil. While we're on the uh, sort of topic of the mural, shall shall we shall we rip rip off the band-aid and do the Jeremy Corbyn thing? Because well, uh, I did think I did think there was quite a telling sort of quote. Um, I think it was from Andrew Fisher, one of Corbyn's advisors, who just sort of went, Jews don't look like what a persecuted minority look to Jeremy Corbyn, so he just Absolutely. can't identify it. And I thought yeah. it was a fascinating kind of... I don't know if it was meant as a defence or not, but it certainly doesn't work as one. My book, Jews Don't Count, is really at heart about that. It's about how the left, because the book is really about progressives' failure mm. as, or ambiguity as regards Jews, is progressives at a time of extreme reaction to and sensitivity around uh, racism and, and identity and whatever, don't somehow can't plug into that for Jews. And that's because Jews don't quite fit into the idea of what an oppressed minority looks like, despite really, really centuries of being an oppressed minority. Now, I was a Sussex University graduate. When you go to Sussex University, you walk through Library Square and whether it's, you know, uh, killer cola and trade unionists being supposedly murdered by right-wing paramilitaries because they're breaking lines at bottling plants in Bogota, or if it's, you know, Cuba, or at the time when I first went to university, sanctions on Iraq, which were meaning that baby milk wasn't getting through. And all of it, eventually comes back to talking about the state of Israel, the military-industrial complex, the realities of selling weapons, and then, and I think this is super important, the treatment of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. And people have absolutely legitimate concerns about the way that um, uh, the Israeli state particularly under Trump, is given, uh, you know, the IDF are often given what, what is, is seen by most people to be a free pass to, to, uh, uh, to, to utilize um, uh, forms of um, militaristic behavior, occupation, but also, you know, utterly dehumanizing collective punishment on people. Now, the problem is that very intelligent people that I know 
and I'm not going to get into specifics of who because it's pointless, but they conflate things that are deeply and utterly dangerous. And I think that the seeds of this go back to, particularly for, for my generation, it's all post 9-11. It's all the idea that sort of the CIA, Mossad, uh, MI6 worked to help form, um, you know, the basis of uh, the support for the Mujahideen, which sort of, you know, spiraled out and turned into Al-Qaeda. And there is a conflation between, you know, the sort of thing that gets spoken about over cups of tea, people smoking joints, going down, talking about how they shouldn't be drinking milk and should be having some sort of, you know, oat milk substitute. And then just saying these very offhand comments, which seem to then link to things like Bilderberg Group, Davos, and into the conspiracy, even deeply intelligent people. Why is it so seductive, David? Why do so many other otherwise clear thinking people seem to lose it? Is, is, is the state of Israel really at the heart of it? Um, in my approach to anti-Semitism as an issue, try in a way to avoid talking about Israel. I know that's quite hard to do and seems quite odd, but I think that it is kind of racist uh, to assume that as a Jew, I have a very strong position about Israel. I don't. But a lot of people think that, David, don't they? That if you are Jewish, you must be pro-Israel. Yeah, no, that, that's racist. It's right. racist to assume that I, as a British Jew, uh, have any real kind of em more emotional connection with a place you know, I have a 2,000 miles away. Uh, it's not as far as that, is it? But anyway, uh, that I do with lots of other things going on in the world, right? Um, and so what I try and do all the time is disentangle what I consider to be, you know, issues to do with Israel to, to what would then I would consider to be anti-Semitism. In a way, that's a whole different podcast. But I, want, I would mention one thing to do with Corbyn, which I think fits into what you're saying. So... Uh, in his interview with Andrew Neil just before the last election, um, there was quite a lot of fuss and energy around the fact that he was asked again by Andrew Neil to apologise about anti-Semitism, uh, and he didn't quite do it. And there was a lot of fuss about that. And actually, I was less interested in that than something that happened just before that, where Andrew Neil pointed, and this fits entirely into a, a, your conspiracy theory podcast he pointed to a thing that was on a website a labor website or possibly a palestinian website but a labor approved website where someone had said uh zionist uh zionist power controls world governments and controls world banks um and he said is that anti-semitic and to Corbyn, and Corbyn wouldn't say it was. Yeah, I and he asked him again, cool. and Corbyn continually wouldn't say it was. Mm. Uh, and eventually, he said something like, "Well, it can be seen as that." The reason why Jeremy Corbyn couldn't say that is that for a lot of left-leaning people, uh, it is so important to oppose what they would see as the elitist, globalist control of the world from capitalism that if that need to oppose those things shades into anti-Semitism. That's a lesser concern. Mm. It's more important to keep up the rebel yell against the, those powers than it is to worry about Jewish sensibilities. Mm. And that is why Jews don't count. There is also this sort of magic trick that some people on the left seem to have, that if they just use the word Zionist instead of Jew, yeah, of course. it suddenly magically can't be anti-Semitic, isn't it? Yeah. Let's get into this thing, because as I've said many times on this podcast before, this is a big tent. You know, you may not understand all the terms that you're hearing. So look, just quickly, let's just define what Zionism is. 
so people can actually understand what the basic definition is. I don't know if I can do it, really. I mean, as far as I understand it, Zionism is a belief in Jewish national self-determination. Yeah, but, that's literally but really, it. But, but lots of people would say it, it, it now means someone who supports you know, the existence of the state of Israel. There's something particular about, I think, Jewish people that I, I sort of wanted to jump on because I wonder if it makes... Um, them more prone to to be the targets of conspiracy theories. And it's, you know, we know that familiarity actually tends to breed trust. You know, when gay people became more visible, we became more accepted. When Mm -hmm. uh, we know that areas that are more multicultural generally are less racist, it's harder to other and villainize people if you mix with them every day and they're pretty normal. And, you know, I'm just sort of thinking, I don't think I knowingly met a Jewish person until I went to university. You know, I grew up in Northern England. There's not that many sort of places with Jewish population up there. And this very strange combination of a lot of people outside of a few sort of cities in the country or even in the world, you know, could go through their life not meeting a Jewish person, Mm -hmm. but also with that sense of, you know, Jewish people, certainly in the UK, are something of an invisible minority. There's lots of people you wouldn't know are Jewish unless they tell you. And that that combination of not really having met people, but also them not necessarily being distinctive, I wonder whether it makes it an easier group to other and to yeah. make these theories well, I, I also, about. I also think that uh, if you're certainly from a sort of white Western point of view, I think if you're a group that is other but is not recognisably, i.e. visually, immediately recognisable as different, then it's easier to be paranoid about it. Uh, It's why the Nazis uh, were able to do the contradiction of portraying Jews as always immensely recognisable, as Mm. fat, hook nose or whatever, and yet needed to put yellow stars on them and have an enormous amount of checking and registration of Jews so that Jews can secretly merge with Aryans. And that's a very particular dynamic, is that Jews are at once different and yet seem the same as mainstream culture. And if you want to be paranoid, which a lot of people do, uh, that's a way of making them more dangerous and more likely to fit into this underground, working against us, but seeming to be one of us category. We all have questions that keep us up at night. The self-help industry tells us they have answers. As a journalist and a skeptic, I'm not so sure. So I've set out to talk to people who have gone to radical lengths to find answers. I'm Catherine Rowland. From Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Seeking. On season one, we're diving deep into the portal of plant medicine and psychedelics. Listen to Seeking wherever you get your podcasts. You know, let's get into something that obviously happened very, very recently. Um, And David, it was one of the reasons that you and I actually eventually started properly talking on on Twitter. And that was uh, the grime artist Wiley and a good 48 hours of continuous Jew bashing, anti-Semitic tropes, which seemed essentially to come from the fact that he had a issue with his manager and the contract that he was in. And it was pretty horrific. And it was sort of a continuous barrage. And I uh, ended up sort of getting in a bit of a pylon because I sort of said, look, you know, 
essentially, I, I think I fell into a trope of talking about some sort of, you know, uh, you know, race based sort of sort of, you know, racism Olympics without sort of meaning to. But what genuinely terrified me much more than just Wiley putting his tweet out was the response to it particularly the response of a community who had come hugely into focus with the BLM sort of protest of those supporters of the BLM movement who seemed to somehow negate this. This wasn't a big deal. This wasn't this. And it feeds into exactly what you said, David, which is that it's, it's the high and the low simultaneously. Were you shocked when, when the Wiley outburst took place or, or did, did not surprise you the response to it? Um, well, I was a bit shocked. Uh, because I don't, hadn't really seen like that direct attack coming from, you know, someone like that before. But although there'd already been, I can't remember his name now, which is rubbish of me, but uh, an American guy had done a, a, a thing about how Jews had um, basically created Hollywood and Hollywood had suppressed in representation of black people. And that was why, you know, uh, we had the condition of uh, a sort of white supremacist popular culture. And he carried on like that for mm. quite some time without much reproach. Uh, and, you know, yeah, there, there have been a few. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously what happens there is that there, particularly around Black Lives Matter, is that there was an instinct of, of some people on the left to want to sort of forgive Wiley yeah. for it because he's a black guy and because, you know, he's a respected black guy who's the godfather of crime and all, all the but rest of it. They were also making the point, weren't they, that like Katie Hopkins, Nigel Farage, Tommy Robinson have been sounding off and sounding off and sounding off and nothing was yeah, happening. Yeah, that's, that's wrong. That's wrong. Okay, I, I actually deal with this in my book. Yeah. One of the things about that is, uh, is that Twitter, much to its fault, had been failing to deal with hate speech on the, the platform for ages and ages and ages. Of course, very famously, Alex Jones and, and you know, yeah, exactly. And, and, and then in the last sort of four months had changed its policy on that, had started to, you know, censor some of Trump's things or, you know, add notices to some of Trump's things and had got rid of Katie Hopkins and had really started to, you know, clamp down on it. And that's when Wiley started saying his stuff. Mm. So the idea that all these people were let to carry on for ages just because they were white is wrong. They were no. allowed to carry on because Twitter had a different policy at that point. Wiley carried on for like a week or whatever. I mean, it happened with that guy. Oh, God, again, I can't remember his name because I'm old. Okay, there's an ex-Northern Irish politician uh, who had a go at Marcus Rashford, right? right. And he trended on Twitter. Owen Jones called him out and said he shouldn't have a blue tick. He had a blue tick, blah, blah, blah. And then immediately... People started saying, oh, just because he's white, unlike Wiley, he's allowed mm. to carry on. But he wasn't. He was gone in like 24 hours. Uh, and so it's not true that Wiley, you know, had had it worse because he's a, a black guy. It's just that Twitter's policy, he decided to be racist about Jews at a time when Twitter have changed their policy about but that. But it was stuff. just another conspiracy theory immediately. It was like... Well, well, the, other thing is, the other thing is that is that what Wiley was saying was, of course, very much about the high-status part of the conspiracy theory. Yeah, exactly. Uh, about Jews controlling this and Jews controlling that, whatever. He did, by the way, also retweet some Holocaust denial and some really yeah. bad stuff as well. 
It, I mean, it was it was a really extended rant. I think some because yeah. Twitter selectively deleted some of the tweets and not others. It actually was a horrible policy because it made it look like people were going, "This is out and out racism." Yeah, and people would look and see only slightly problematic tweets. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, because the fully racist ones were deleted. They ended yeah. up actually sanitizing his racism for it. It was. Uh, uh, I mean, I said yesterday on Twitter because Trump's being accused of saying. Uh, that Jews all stick together and that they're more loyal to each other, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I pointed out that Trump has always been an anti-Semite. He doesn't think he is because there's some speeches where he said things like, oh, you folks to Jews, you folks are great negotiators. And what that is, <laughs> is, framing, is framing a negative stereotype as a positive. Yeah. Now, I think that's quite important with Wiley because I think some people think that if you say Jews control the world, Jews have power, blah, 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 you're not saying anything bad about them. That's what they think. I think oh, they God. think, well, that's good, isn't it? But no, that's not led to the Holocaust. I mean, straightforwardly, people thinking Jews have too much power is what leads to the most extreme actions against Jews. It is quite, quite staggering that we sort of only 70 years or so from literally a third of the Jews on the planet being horribly and systemically murdered. And yet we already still are back to conspiracy theories going, Jews run everything. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. how, how, you know, if you can have something like the Holocaust, you know, what possible more evidence could you have that it's a vulnerable group and a vulnerable minority as any others are? Uh, and yet just revert from it so much. It, it's sort of, it, it's it's quite a hopeless case in against sort of stopping conspiracies. Can I end, can I just end on a sort of comic observation, which is to do with Wiley? Uh, so just before he got taken off, uh, he mentioned me. He said he'd come see you in Golders Green, didn't he? Well, that's the thing, right? Is he did a series of tweets saying, "Come and speak to my face, David Benil. Come on, Alan Sugar, Emma Barnett, <laughs> Golders Green. Let's sit down and talk." And what it reminded me of was uh, in 1981, England were beaten by Norway, and it's a famous thing. The Norwegian commentator started going, "Winston Churchill, Lady Diana, Lord Peter, your boys took one hell of a beat." All the English things he could think of, and Wiley was thinking of all the Jewish things he could think of. <laughs> Bring your bagels and your yarmulkes. I'll throw some smoked salmon in your face. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he'll throw some gefilte fish at you. Let's hope so. Yeah, anyway, listen, yeah. David, thank you so, so much for joining the podcast. But we have come to that point, as we always do, where we need to say yay or nay. So, gentlemen, do the Jews control the world? Uh, yeah, we actually do. I, I think <laughs> it's an exclusive for the podcast. <laughs> We've finally been able to tell you the Jews do control yeah. everything, literally everything. It's yeah. I mean, I've, you know, I've, I've said a lot of stuff about how it isn't true, but if you're going to ask me a point blank question, I've got to say yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. We have finally, after literally nigh on hundreds of years of conspiracy, finally brought you the truth of the matter. Thank you so much uh, for joining the podcast. And obviously... Thanks so much for David uh, to, to become. David, what, what is the name of the book again and when exactly is it out next year? Uh, I think the book is called Hashtag Jews Don't Count uh, and it's out uh, in January, I believe. Fantastic. Well, listen, please, please do uh, like and subscribe to the podcast. I know it's really boring, but those five-star reviews really, really help uh, and they'll help us convince uh, what you know the Jewish Illuminati that we can get a second series because obviously they're in charge of that as well. Uh, so for me, Julian Rubenstein, thank you very much. David, Thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast. We'll be back next week. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.